to The Long Game, a podcast by Macau Group where we bring you conversations with talented specialists and people who are passionate about what they do in the built environment. My name is Kelvin Moreki and I lead the team here at Macau. If you'd like to learn more, you can check us out at macau.com.au. That's M-A-K-A-O.com.au. This is volume one where we focus on energy efficiency in buildings. And today's guest is Jesse Clark from ProClimber. Uh, he'll be sharing his knowledge and expertise on weather tightness, condensation, and other, and other topics. We'll also touch on the impact that uh, a policy or building has on um, not just liability, but also health, comfort, and energy performance of the building. As always, leave the door to your mind open and enjoy the conversation. Maybe to begin with, uh, Jesse, it would be best for the listeners to just hear about your professional journey um, so far. Um, uh, just your story of how you get you got to where you are now. I, if I go back to, to what I started at uni to start with, which was mm. photovoltaics and solar energy. So it, it was, a, I guess, a progressive sort of uh, course to get into because we were the first year of students that went through that and, and got that um, actual degree in, in photovoltaics and solar energy. And from then, I went off and um, started with just a small company doing installation, PV system, um, design for integrated photovoltaic systems where the, the, the PV panels were actually integrated into the, the roof cladding itself. And that, did that, uh, that's early 2000s. Okay. Um, started off there, yeah. The pioneers. Yeah, yeah, kind of. It's, it's changed since then. So that all happened at uh, University of New South Wales. Um, mm-hmm. they, they do more generic renewable energy engineering courses now, not so specific on photovoltaics. Yeah, so so that anyway, that was a good good grounding. I mean, it was it was that progressive thinking, and, and if I had have stuck with it, you would have found that you know the solar industry is uh, booming now. Yeah. So um, that's that that's I guess where I like to be um, <laughs> in the early days of adoption rather than uh, in, in the late phases of adoption. But from that that small firm I worked with doing the, the PV installations, I, I jumped across to engineering consultancy in. ESD, essentially, in, in the early days when the building energy efficiency regulations first came in to the building mm-hmm. code. So we're talking around 2005 and doing Section J compliance. Uh, I remember when I first started doing that, it didn't exist in the building code. So it was more inventive and creative in that the ESD solutions you put forward, there were no requirements. So it was more just about what should I do to make it more green, if you like. Yeah. And then the building code came in and it sort of made it not so fun. <laughs> Chicken boxes for compliance is, is not is not the most fun thing to do. It's, it's always more interesting to try and push the boundaries of, of things. But I did that for about five or six years and, and worked for a year in um, London uh, doing the same thing, but, but in the context of the UK. Came back to Australia and then it wasn't too long after that that I jumped across into building products, but more on the in the resi sector because the building products company that I went across to was focused more on the, the resi sector, large, um, very large building products company in Australia. Yeah, supplying insulation products and, well, whole portfolio products, insulation and cladding materials, bricks and roofing and roof tiles, uh, glazing, glass. So all that stuff. But um, my, my main role there was, was around the energy efficiency side that started off in the insulation group, learned all about how the codes and standards work. Also, just the sheer amount of detail that goes into insulation and insulation design, but also that all insulation isn't created equal and all insulation doesn't operate the same. And 
that comes back to um, basically how it works. Obviously, the R value is important. We all know the R value is for insulation, but then the effects of that and how one selection of material has a different outcome or when you start to introduce the moisture side of things and you start to get into building fabric design. And that's where I started going down this route of, oh, okay, how do we make our buildings perform better, not just from plonk and insulation in it, but then how do we add in all the other control layers required to make that insulation work really well. So then we start talking about moisture management and air tightness and all these things that also need to be considered to get really good performing buildings or good mm-hmm. performing building envelopes. And that sent me down the building science track and I went down this rabbit hole and never came out. <laughs> and it still was in it. Yeah, still in it, still in it essentially. So it was about um yeah, that was up until about three years ago. And then I moved across to Proclima and, and started really, I guess, working in the, the high end, uh, high performance end of the market, which is trying to push the boundaries and, and lead the way, I guess, rather than trying to push the way. So it's more of the carrot than the stick mm-hmm. or a little bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, showing people what, what can be as to a, what is um, standard, which is building compliance. So now this, that's where you are with the upper climber. Yeah. There's a lot uh, you've mentioned that I'd like to unpack, <laughs> but uh, maybe just to begin with, for someone who doesn't know about Proclimber, your company, could you just uh, shed some light about what the company does and uh, the market it's in? Yeah. So I would say Proclimber is one of the most progressive, if not the most progressive building products company uh, in Australia to date because we push the boundaries of what the future will entail. And ProClima is a German-based company. So obviously a lot of that knowledge that was talked about and all that knowledge that was developed probably 30, well, starting 30 or 40 years ago in Germany is then being, I guess, pushed across the oceans and towards Australia, which is, um, you know, these the sort of things that we already worked out in other parts of the world um, yeah. come across to Australia. But Pro Climber started off as in the ecological building movement in Germany. Mm. And that was in the 1980s when they started to make more airtight buildings. Mm-hmm. And the ecological building movement was using natural materials. Uh, so we're talking about timber based materials we're talking about wood fiber insulation we're talking about making buildings out of all sorts of materials that have low embodied energy but also are made from natural fibers so also things like cellulose insulation if natural fibers start to get wet or damp Mm. then over time they start to obviously grow mold and then start to decay and then you end up trading off energy efficiency for severe lack of durability and the building starts to to fall apart earlier than it should so then the questions came around how do we manage that moisture whether that be rain ingress or whether it be humidity in the structure from entrapment within that building envelope so that building will last for as long as possible and Mm -hmm. that's where the durability discussion comes in and that's then all those theories and that science and the learnings from that ecological movement were translated then to mainstream construction because if you keep the building dry, it basically lasts a long time. 
that would be a big um, challenge to uh, to deal with, especially that durability thing. Because when you're dealing with the natural elements, um, the durability is one of the challenges you have to deal with because they tend to react in certain ways when they're um, exposed to the elements. How, how do you guys uh, go about, I guess, m- making sure that or improving or increasing the durability of uh, the materials or the mm-hmm. products that you bring to the market? Yeah, good question. So... I haven't really touched on what we actually sell as Brokawama. Um, yeah. That's where we came from in terms of the managing the durability of the structures. But, mm-hmm. but what we actually sell is systems mm-hmm. that primarily membranes, um, and they're less than one millimeter thick of membrane on the outside building, mm-hmm. one less one one millimeter thick or less than one millimeter thick on the inside of the building. But these membranes and choosing the right membranes and sealing them up from a water ingress perspective. So stopping water getting into the building, but then for also vapor management to stop water vapor ingress into the construction systems that can then entrap itself behind other materials or within materials. When you get elevated poor moisture content in in natural fibers, then they, they get to a point where they might start to degrade. But the thing that I guess is more complex about it is, well, where is that water vapor coming from and how do we stop? Oh, sorry, where's the, the moisture coming from, which can be outside the building as rain mm-hmm. or it can be inside the building as water vapor? And how do we choose those layers and select the right material properties so that we don't entrap any moisture? Okay. Oh, nice. Uh, before we dive into into the technical aspect, just uh, be, begin to hear about like the transition from say the PV and the engineering um, space into the building. How how was that uh, transition process for you? Was it relatively easy, or what what were the challenges? Were there any challenges? Um, but I presume um, that there are a lot of transfer, transferable skills that you came in, came in with. Yeah. In, in the early days of my career, because it was consulting, it was a lot of theory, theory-based mm-hmm. stuff, um, calculations according to building code compliance and all that. But before I even got to the point of studying at university, um, I'd done quite a, had a, quite a bit of experience on residential construction sites because my dad was a builder. Mm-hmm. So the transferable skills gone from that, oh, this is how the calculations and the engineering side of things work, but then gone back a few steps and going, well, what did I learn when I was a teenager in the school holidays working on building sites? That was more about how things actually go together. Let's say um, the reality of building, which is you still have to put stuff together. And that's where the transferable skills came, moving out of that ESD consulting into the building products game. Because if you're selling building products, ultimately someone has to put these things together and the more information you can give and the better knowledge and the better understanding of how the products and systems are actually assembled then that's where you get the good outcomes because if you can assemble them well if you've got high quality products with quality workmanship you get a quality outcome that's what we're after at the end of the day and a lot of it is in the hands of the builders and their trades on site and in terms of the because you you were there is pre even pre code, pre section J and all that stuff. Um, how yeah. how's the industry changed over the years? Like well, from your observation, it's I guess it's progressed quite a bit. I mean, there's levers that have been pulled at the regulatory level, uh, energy performance, mm-hmm. um, but the energy performance is largely from where I see it, what I see is or it's largely being pushed on paper, not necessarily pushed in reality. And this is, this is the thing that always didn't sit well 
with me, which was I knew that things were being specified, things were being put in buildings, but they weren't necessarily operating the way they should. Mm. And then you go, well, why doesn't our building deliver that outcome? Uh, and it's because, well, you know what, what really makes it work is, is that quality workmanship uh, and, and the way the products are all assembled together. So just having something flapping around in your wall and expecting it to you know, produce um, some thermal resistance may or may not be true. <laughs> depending on, on the quality of the, the install. So that's where, you know, I've always went for, you know, I always prided myself on, on doing things properly. And now I'm just trying to help the whole industry do things properly, essentially, which is which is get that get that actual performance by, by building buildings and, and making buildings um, not just on paper but in reality and so they work um, and deliver the outcomes we want them to deliver. And would you say the rate of change has been rapid slow or just right i think for me it's it's slow mm-hmm. uh, the construction industry is slow it's where do you want to operate within that construction in, where do you want to operate within the construction industry because there's there's all different sections of the construction industry so you, obviously like any i guess process of innovation there's the, the early adopters the late adopters and then right at the back you got the laggards so where do you want to who do you want to work with? Do you want to work with the laggards and, and drag them kicking and screaming? Or do you want to work with the early adopters and the mid to late adopters or whatever? But um, push that high end who are a lot faster and a lot moving a lot faster. But to some extent, I feel that there's often even that group gets held back by, by the mainstream and by the building code because the building code doesn't necessarily allow easily a super high performance international best practice building to be built because then you run into the certifiers and saying that's not compliant Mm. and then you've got to justify that it's actually better than compliance but how do they know and to be fair to them how do they know how do they know it's Mm. yeah it's like you're building this thing but that doesn't meet the standards it doesn't meet the code well it's not built to the code and then you've got to try and explain why it's better so to answer your questions is it fast um depending where you're operating uh, I think there was from when I did the change from mainstream building products to to high performance building products. Mm-hmm. That was a big transition and super fast for me. But in terms of the, or in context of the whole industry, no, because not everyone's doing it, mm-hmm. and there's a small amount of people mm-hmm. that are doing this high performance stuff. Do you see a commonality in terms of the people or the um, groups or entities that are working in that high performance space, that high end of uh, leading the way rather than just the tick box kind of stuff? Yeah, well, I think uh, it probably always all comes back to the business model, what you're using to uh, essentially make money. And I think there's a lot of people at the high end that say, look, we pride ourselves on delivering the high performance and our business model is to give you the super high quality and you get to pick up those customers and those clients that want that super high quality. Mm. But I think most of the construction industry is geared towards building the cheapest possible building you can possibly build and selling it for as the largest possible sum of money you can possibly get for it. There's way too many people with that business model and not enough with the business model of I'm going to show you or deliver you the best building you can possibly have. But you're going to have to have the money to pay for that as well, obviously, because it's not going to be as cheap as the cheapest possible building to build. So there's always a trade-off. Yeah. I think uh, we'll probably 
start to get into a slightly more technical domain, which is um, where Roberto uh, probably know he has a few questions in that space. I know you've uh, recently, Proclaim has recently released the Blue Book. Uh, yeah. Uh, been skimming through it. Could you just uh, tell us a little bit more about what it is and uh, maybe the, the, the goals and um, yeah, just tell us more about the, book, the Blue Book. Yeah, okay. So this, I guess, off the years of learning that I've um, had probably over the last, let's say, 10 years and, and progressing through this building science uh, learnings and, and the story around building science, what building science allows you to do is innovate. So it allows you to move outside the world of brick veneer or lightweight drained and ventilated cavities on the outside of residential buildings or you know traditional precast concrete with interior insulation. And that's the way we've always done it. Therefore, it must be right. Yeah. So the innovation process and understanding the building science and how to layer these systems to stop water coming into the system and prevent entrapment of water vapour is really important because what has happened in other parts of the world, people innovating and not understanding this whole moisture management process is that you run into this really poor moisture balance within the structure and you build and end up um, having bad outcomes for health or durability. So the Blue Book was then outlining, hey, here's some ideas around how you could develop new construction systems or better construction systems taking you from standard practice, which there are a lot in that book, to things that are what's considered, you know, only the Europeans would build that sort of style um, construction systems. But there is a fundamental reasons why the Europeans build it that way. Uh, it's not just because they like to spend a lot of money and, and have too much money to spend and therefore want to flush it down the toilet on really expensive ways to build. Uh, and it comes back to those discussions or those arguments around health and durability, which, by the way, will probably deliver you a more energy efficient building because it would be have less thermal bridging and all sorts of other um, value propositions to go with it. So anyway, the Blue Book is, is outlining those systems to, as, as a first port of call to say, hey, why don't you consider any of these systems and you can calculate it. And it was also laying down a methodology and a thinking process to enable us as a country to go, okay, now let's do 400,000 calculations and work out exactly where all these construction systems work and where they don't work. I just don't have capacity myself to do 400,000 calculations. So I need every engineer in the country to help me. (laughs) Distributed approach. Yeah. A more, sorry, uh, decentralized approach. Yeah, Co- collaborative. Yeah. Collaborative. <laughs> yeah. yeah, oh, nice. Um, we'll, have to, we'll have to create some wiki or something where someone can just post all their answers and their, their calculations. <laughs> to <laughs> I mean, share that, it all. That would be awesome. Yeah, share yeah. it all and just trade trade um, solutions. Yeah, that, that would be, uh, I'd be keen to see, to see if that would, uh, would, would actually work. Roberto, feel free to jump in with any questions. Say, uh, it's important to uh, mention, uh, I'm pretty sure Jesse offers um, training courses on uh, WFI uh, uh, model. Yeah, yeah, Woofy. That's so, uh, one of the key tools to uh, perform all the calculations. Yeah, correct. So, so Wolf is not the only tool out there, but it is the one that ProClimber is promoting. Uh, and we work with the Fraunhofer Institute uh, quite closely who develop that uh, software. And that's been in development for over 30 years, let's say 40 years. 
so this discussion, like I said, in the 1980s back in Germany, we were having this discussion, they were having this discussion around moisture and started the research. So what I would like to do and what I'd like to see is piggyback off um, what has already been done and experienced internationally rather than try and reinvent the wheel. And I think there's just too much of that, let's reinvent the wheel happening in Australia. And because we've only got, what, 20, 25 million people, as opposed to 300 million in Europe and another 300 million in the US, who has more people to, that are looking at these problems, brain capacity looking at these problems to help solve the problems? Well, it's internationally, there's a lot more people that are thinking about this in, in Australia. So anyway, so on, on Woofy, yeah, we, we do train on Woofy. It's a hydrothermal analysis software, looks at the heat and moisture flows within building envelope, how you layer those material layers so that you don't accidentally put a the wrong material in the wrong location, in the wrong climate, in the wrong building type, and create a massive problem, liability for yourself. Uh, and then the lawyers have to get involved. So if we can keep the lawyers out of it, then we're doing well. Liability is always a big thing. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and this is um, it has, is actually a big driver of, of a lot of this moisture stuff uh, as opposed to energy efficiency because energy efficiency, it's like, well, tell me one person that's been sued for not meeting or accidentally having a thermal bridge that shouldn't be there or a missing piece of insulation. Are there any cases out there? <laughs> Not off the not off the top of my head, yeah. Uh, yeah, but when you start to get moisture problems, particularly water leaks, then you start looking at, hey, shout across the ditch to New Zealand and say, what are you guys doing? And I'll tell you that they've got $47 billion worth of damage from a leaky building crisis because they tried to innovate um, and didn't quite get it right. Wow, so, $47 yeah. billion. Well, that's a, um, from Peter Dyer's book. Um, mm. That's what he quoted, uh, an extrapolation, but yes, mm. Mm. <laughs> something like that. But the exact number is not really known, but, but that's, mm. that's the estimate. Is that from... Um, just uh, internal or just uh, external so moisture? This, yeah, this is, this is, yeah, this is the $47 billion question. Um, so up until now, Brands has been focusing largely on the water ingress because obviously you get a, a water leak that can deposit a lot more moisture into your construction system a lot more quickly mm. than vapour diffusion. So Brands, if you don't know, they're the Building Research Association of New Zealand and they were set up you know, a few decades ago to try and essentially try and solve this problem. And yeah, a lot of the building codes in New Zealand have been progressively updated uh, to, to, to help solve that water ingress problem. And now the conversation's slowly moving towards, okay, we've got more weather type buildings, but what about this secondary moisture source, which is the humidity inside the building that can then entrap itself in the wall and roof systems and cause condensation, high humidity in the, in the material layers, particularly on the outside of the structure that gets quite cold. Mm-hmm. So those weather tight layers on the outside of the structure that they've been progressively pushing for the last two or three decades, then once they're properly weather tight, they're airtight and they can potentially be barriers for condensation. So then all of a sudden you go, okay, we've got more watertight buildings, but we've got buildings that are now trapping water vapor in places we don't want them to trap. We don't want it to be trapped. Mm-hmm. So that's where all the building science starts coming. How do we balance this um, relationship between the waterproofing, the energy efficiency, and the water vapor management? So as to not create high humidity and mold or corrosion or timber rot or anything else that might happen. And how, how do you navigate that trilemma? 
<laughs> you start with weatherproofing, number one. Uh, weatherproofing's the most important. Uh, that's why we have building structures to stop water getting in. And if I sit here and say that no buildings in Australia are waterproof, is anyone going to tell me I'm wrong? Uh, I, I would say just about every building in Australia would take water to some extent. And, to some extent. Yeah. And, and the question then is, okay, if it does leak, mm-hmm. or sorry, not if it does, when it leaks, how does that water dry out? So you're building in a resilience or a drying potential, capacity to dry out. That's what you want in your in your building envelope. That's what you want in your structures. So it's the what if my building fails scenario, or not what if, or when it fails, then how's it dry out? So you have capacity to dry out water leaks, but you also have capacity to dry out what if no one opens my windows in my house or no one opens the windows in my apartment? Can it still permeate through the building envelope to an extent not to create big problems for myself. I was going to say it's it, it, weather tightness is an interesting one because I keep raising this um, in energy efficiency discussions and some people look at me going, what, what are you talking about? This is not anything to do with weather tightness, but a more weather-type building or a truly weather-type building will actually deliver a level of air tightness whether you like it or not. Because to make That's it weather-tight, you, you've sealed everything up. You've sealed mm. everything up to stop the water coming in. Now you've created a more weather-type building, a more air-type building. And one of the big examples of this is um, multi-residential buildings and precast concrete. So to get a precast concrete system weather-type, you have sealed joints between all the panels, normally two um, a pressure-equalised joints. So you've got two seals there, and therefore it's become an air-type. And you've mm-hmm. got this around all your apartments, and the only way that air can leak into that apartment is through the window suite, mm-hmm. mainly. So you end up having this, this, these sealed boxes, and this indoor humidity goes up and up because we've got no humidity management. And then over the years, you progressively just push more and more water vapor into the precast, into this, which is on the cold side of the building envelope, which then elevates moisture content year on year on year on year. So then five, six, seven, eight years down the track, you've got this soggy precast um, around your whole building. And then what happens to all that water? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and this, this is, yeah, it's just a complete lack of thinking about durability and long-term uh, performance, which is not regulated yet. Which is where now the liability and all that stuff comes in. Mm-hmm. Hmm. except that you only have builder's warranty, which isn't normally longer than five to seven years. Seven years. Which, in my opinion, a building should last a lot longer than seven years. Than seven years, for sure. We should be talking 10 times that, 70 years, and then we're in the in the ball game. That would be, be the dream um, once we get to thinking in, along those timescales. Yeah. Yeah. So I see where... If, if you focus on the weather tightness uh, bit, by extension, you kind of resolve all the other issues with, of air tightness and then energy energy efficiency as well. When you spoke offline, you did mention that uh, how we talk about energy efficiency can shape the end outcomes that we have. Um, and instead, we should be, um, I guess, beginning the con- conversation around whether it's health, comfort, durability, yeah. um, and then from there, move move on to these other, these other elements. Um, could you just uh, touch touch a little, a little bit on that? So on how all these things are interrelated, health, comfort, e- durability? Yeah, or using that as a core focus and then that, it kind of permeates towards um, the energy performance as well. 
Yeah, yeah, okay. So energy performance or making better buildings through driving energy outcomes, in my opinion, is difficult Mm -hmm. because energy is so cheap. So therefore, you do the cost-benefit analysis purely based on energy, purely put in insulation and better glazing, and you go, nah, at all costs way too much, and the payback is going to take me you know, way too long, and therefore, it's not viable. If you then come back and say, okay, what about the health discussion, and what's the value of health, then all of a sudden, you've got to start answering the question, well, what's, what's your health worth? Um, so it depends if you're trying to prove this to the government or prove it to yourself. But most people in Australia would probably say that their health is priceless um, and it's of higher value than anything. So you want to be healthy. And I could ask 100%, 100% of people, I would say, would say, yes, I want to be healthy. I don't think there's anyone out there that's going to say, no, I don't want to be healthy. So if we have a discussion around healthy buildings and what makes a healthy building, um, then we can probably drive or hopefully drive more value um, that people will resonate with the people that, that will lead to overall better buildings. But when you mentioned comfort, something I always say is, um, well, I mean, a question for you is, is comfort a luxury or is it something that um, we must have? Personally, I think it's something that we must have. Yeah, so comfort to me is just a metric for health. So if you say what's thermal comfort, you're actually saying, well, what's the thermally healthy band that I should be living in permanently? It's not a luxury that can be traded for, say, energy efficiency. So mm-hmm. if I say, okay, I can trade, if, if I could trade my comfort for energy efficiency, I'd just say, well, let's just have a temperature range in my house uh, that goes from 5 degrees Celsius to 45 degrees Celsius. And all of a sudden, well, that's not healthy. No, it's not healthy. So what is healthy? And we've got to have a discussion around what's the healthy comfort band, Mm -hmm. but also what's the health of the building in terms of other metrics like, you know, mold growth, which we talk a lot about as proclimate because it's related to moisture. And that's the first thing that happens when you get too much moisture. You start to get mold spores, indoor air quality um, issues, you know, a lot of, well, if you impile all these in together into the one basket and say, okay, what's the value of having buildings that aren't mouldy, they've got really good indoor air quality, they're in a thermally healthy, always in a thermally healthy comfort band. Now, tell me what that's worth, not the dollars of energy that I'm going to save. And if you can move the discussion that way, which is not an easy question to answer, by the way, um, what, what's the value or how much health, what's the dollars figure for the health savings? Um if you can move the discussion that way, then hopefully we can we can have more way it will stack up better from the, the cost benefit. Yeah, uh, it's, it's funny because when I when I first started uh, this particular uh, series, um, I called it energy efficiency, so volume one energy efficiency in buildings. But interestingly enough, all the guests uh, that have come on board have push the conversation towards that of health and comfort um, rather than energy efficiency. So yeah. I'll probably have to change that title towards, towards the end of the series. Uh, How do we uh, make the existing buildings healthy? That's, that's one of the things that I've been questioning myself. Uh, I live in a double brick house. I've been talking about moisture ingress, speaking to Kelvin before this recording. Uh, like right next to where my son's sleeping, um, I have... You know, Plus the peeling off the, uh, the wall, so um, and that's pretty much like the bulk of the uh, vast majority of the buildings in Melbourne. Um, uh, yeah, a 
brick facade or uh, and we try to talk to a developer or someone's renovating or well, there's an opportunity here if you're extending the house to uh, have a, a better weather tight uh, envelope mm. they don't want to have any uh, loss of uh, floor area so there's a mix some people yeah they, they perceive the benefit of a healthy building but some others uh, I still believe they, it's more important to have you know a large flare and um, uh, an expensive kitchen and yeah. a proper envelope proper execution the uh, insulation yeah so it's a, the 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 ROI driver return on investment and um, yeah people are largely looking at all the the real estate and all the uh, the whole construction industry in, in that through that lens which is largely I mean it creates the construction industry creates a lot of revenue for for everyone from at all levels yeah, it ultimately comes down to does the consumer or the person paying for that building, whether it be residential or commercial, do they value those all that extra stuff that you're putting in there that is not just purely bling um, that the people fork out extra money for? So all the stuff that's hidden in the walls and hidden in the roof that, it, that is um, unseen, do they value that? And then do they value the the other um, outcomes of that health and durability? And it's a hard thing to to communicate easily and simply. I think uh, that it's probably an opportunity to expand the requirements of compensation uh, management in the in the NCC. I mean, most of the some of the clients that comes to me, they, they just go, "Yeah, we tick the box with the team to satisfy." I mean, of all those years, I have. Done one condensation modeling for client in North Queensland for like a cold room, so nothing related to residential. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to, it's pretty clean here, it's team to set spine, oh, we tick the box. Yeah. Uh, as an example. Yeah, exactly. And um, I mean, the, that was a cool room, did you say? Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, so it was a, some sort of commercial client or yeah, yeah. like a large, yeah, large client, yeah. So, yeah, it, it, it's a difficult one, but I think in the residential side of things, you, you're going to be pushing it to get people to do condensation analysis on residential homes. It's going to be more driven by holistic analysis and people crunching many, many permutations to work out what works in different climate zones. In the commercial segment, well, as you said, the condensation requirements, they, they don't, they only apply to, in the building code, only apply to um, class two and class four, which is dwellings. Um, oh, and class one, sorry, um, freestanding houses. Yeah. So it's basically where people live. So where you've got lots of moist people inside the building doing stuff that people do, cooking, bathing, showering, having cups of tea, whatever you do that produces water vapor, and then creating condensation. And basically this whole discussion needs to be carried across to all building classes because we do need to be carried to hospitals, schools, uh, aged care, you know, all these places where we've got people that are, you know, that we care about, you know, the elderly and, and sick people and our children, um, we should make sure that we're not getting more growth or, or perverse outcomes happening within the structures of those buildings as well. But if the building code doesn't suggest it's a problem or doesn't even tell you to look at it, then, hey, guess what? No one's going to look at it. <laughs> doesn't mean there's not a problem there. So as we talk about future tra- trajectories towards net zero, then we will have more 
insulated buildings. We will probably have more weather-type buildings as we get better and better at doing that, which means we probably will have more air-type buildings whether we decide to regulate air tightness targets or not or tighten the air tightness targets. So all these overlapping factors mean that we have to worry about water vapour and we have to worry about moisture in our building envelope, and that goes across all, all building classes. So it will get more and it will get, there will be more calculations um, being carried out in the future. It's just a matter of when. Uh, we'll be just uh, taking one step back yeah. for, for the people who, for if a, a listener doesn't have an idea or is unfamiliar with the concept of building science, how would you, um, just from a, maybe a, a systems thinking perspective or a framework perspective, how, how would you uh, describe it and why, why, why does it matter? So we, I guess, those that have looked abroad, um, and a lot of people have in Australia, they've worked abroad, a lot of engineers, uh, they've often grew up in other countries, and they're the people that really see it when they come here, which is um, how different construction practices are in Australia to other, I guess, more progressive countries. But what's happened in other parts of the world, there's been this relationship between energy efficiency and health. So this kind of, we increase the energy efficiency regulations and we create unhealthy buildings. And a lot of that gets pinned on, oh, the buildings are too airtight, but that's not true. Uh, I can explain that more. But basically, you need to start to look at how pulling this giant lever that says you must jam more insulation in your buildings and you must retain more energy in your buildings means that there's a flip side to that coin um, and that is that you're going to create an equal and opposite reaction and if you don't look at what that is or don't pay any attention to it it's essentially moisture so the moisture then starts to accumulate in places you don't want it and you start to get mold growth and unhealthy buildings uh, mold spores and all sorts of uh, poor indoor air quality problems so building science is about developing construction systems or let's say building envelope science um, is about developing construction systems that um, manage energy efficiency or thermally effective in what they do but also uh, will remain dry and healthy nice and succinct <laughs> well, that's that's the best definition I can come up with um, around what uh, I do every day. You Technically speaking, uh, so I have a question. Uh, mm -hmm. We talked about energy efficiency. We measure kilowattherapy, condensation risk. It's the uh, the mold uh, growth index. Can you um, explain a little bit what's the uh, what's the benchmark in the uh, in the BCA or how you uh, your uh, blue book refer to the HERA the A07? Yeah, okay. <laughs> so the there are new benchmarks. Well, actually, in the 2019 code, there's nothing. It's quite vague. Uh, you can carry out a calculation according to a certain set of criteria, and it's left up to the engineer. Um, or you just do the DTS, which is you've got to have certain amounts of vapor permeability on, on SARC-type materials in climate zone 6, 7, and 8. In the 2022 code, which you may have read through the draft, which has come out and public comments just closed, but they're talking about increasing the climate zones that need to have vapor permeability, so moving that up to climate zone 4 and 5 as well, which means that Sydney, inner city Sydney, Adelaide and Perth are all included in that as well. Uh, then inland New South Wales and um, South Australia and, and WA in the climate zone four. 
But essentially, that's a prescriptive method, just having this vapor permeable membranes on the outside of your building. If you then go down to the verification method, it's talking about calling up error DA07, which is the hydrothermal design criteria for, um, for buildings or building envelopes. And that is essentially the rule book on how to do a hydrothermal simulation using a software such as Woofy. So there's a lot of assumptions and, and you guys have done calculations on the energy efficiency side using these, these rating tools. And when you get into some of those rating tools, there's probably, you know, it could be a thousand different uh, parameters you can change to, to get a different answer. So it starts to lock down some of those parameters and create consistency in the assumptions. And by doing that, we can then use it as a compliance method because everyone's sort of everyone's calculating under the same conditions, basically. So anyway, so that rule book sets things like the how you calculate the indoor temperature and humidity, how yeah, how you calculate the indoor temperature and humidity, what happens when you overlay ventilation into your building, like continuous mechanical ventilation systems, and you start to lower the indoor humidity in the building. And then you can calculate um, with using the material properties in terms of the moisture storage of those materials and the vapor permeability of those materials, whether you're likely to entrap moisture, depending if you're building that building in, say, Darwin or in Hobart. And obviously in Darwin, you're cooling the building uh, 95% of the year, and in Hobart, you're probably heating for 95% of the year. So com two completely fundamentally different outcomes you could get for the same construction system in those climates. And that's what the, the era DA07 allows you to do. Yeah, it's, it's, it's setting, I guess, what I would say the pathway for innovation on construction systems to net zero without creating perverse health outcomes in your buildings, which is what we need. And one last thing, it's based on, it was adopted essentially from the um, ASHRAE 160. So a lot of that Intel, a lot of the IP, or all of the IP, I should say, is a collaborative effort, international effort between a lot of the smartest people in the country from the US, um, Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratories, Oak Ridge National Laboratories, Fraunhofer Institute for Building Physics, uh, all collaborating to, to come up with those um, I guess those algorithms and the inputs required in those calculations. Just cycling back to the um, topic around build better better buildings or better quality buildings. I know you've worked with uh, a range of clients from builders, developers, uh, and individual homeowners as well. Um, just based on what you're seeing, um, where would you say we 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 collectively are roughly now? And where should we should we be, or at least where should we aim to be um, in the near in the near future? The tra trajectory towards uh, <laughs> yeah. Where, where are uh, we? Is 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 there is there an end to it? Is the question? Is there an end? To it? <laughs> <laughs> is, is there an end to better buildings, or we just you know it's, it's like anything? You can't say there's an end date, and that's where we need to get to. Although yeah. in turn, uh, what the important thing is to understand: well, what are we actually aiming for? What's a goal? Or we just, or we just increasing the code for the sake of increasing the code, but we don't know what actually we're increasing to try to achieve. Mm -hmm. um, so, what does that end thing look like that, that we're aiming for? And the best thing I can point to at this point is Passive House and say, look, yes, it costs more to build at this point in time, mm -hmm. but it's there and it ticks basically all the boxes. 
um, from all sorts of perspectives because they have been through this process in other parts of the world and they've screwed it up in terms of this balance between um, energy efficiency and health. Uh, Passive House went through it in the early days and went, oh, we're creating problems here. And then that's when all this stuff around moisture started coming to discussion and vapour control layers and weather-resistive barriers on the outside of the systems, um, thermal control layers that are properly implemented, selecting the right insulation type, not just an R value. Uh, all this comes into the equation. And passive house is, well, if we look at that and say, well, we should be aiming for something that looks like that, then we're on the first step because we're just talking about... Um, having continuous mechanical ventilation in the 2022 code for buildings that are under five air changes mm. at 50 pascals. Um, and we're talking about having air tightness targets, which were set in 2019 at 10 air, or per, air permeability of 10. Uh, but that's nowhere near where we should be, which is air tightness down at you know, two, three maybe, and then we talk about a good uh, code level. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how many iterations of building code to get there? We're talking another three, ten years. That would be nice. Ten years. Ten years would be nice if if it um, is seriously updated every every revision, every three years. There's mm-hmm. an actual update and it doesn't wait ten years like the residential side was over ten years uh, mm-hmm. before when it went to six and just moving up to seven-star equivalent in 2022. Mm. So if it takes 10 years to, to, to shift the residential code and, it, and that's how long between revisions, it's, it's going to take us another half a century. Yeah. So hopefully we can fast track it at some point. Yeah. You said a question about around, because um, uh, you did mention that regulations and policy do tend to impact what, what the industry ends up adopting in the, in the, in the short term and also in the long run. Um, I'm just curious to hear what your take is on the, the new code, whether it's uh, the 2019 and the, you've touched on a little bit uh, in, the, in, in your previous comments. But uh, yeah, just keen to hear what you think about what's been uh, proposed so far. I'll, I'll, I'll answer that in the context of residential because that's where the, I guess the majority of the changes are happening from that uh, six-star matters to seven-star seven matters equivalent. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, the way I see it is the elemental provisions, the lookup tables in the building code, they should be really basic. Um, they should be set at insulation levels, which are relatively high. And if you want to value engineer a project, then you should have to calculate it. Um, and that means if you want to use light or dark colored cladings on what, whatever climate zone you're in to get a zero cost or zero reduction in the energy efficiency, uh, zero cost reduction in the energy efficiency, then you should have to contract someone to, to calculate that out for you. Um, but if you just keep it simple, I think that's that's one of the, the keys to the elemental provisions and not have this super complex um, tabular lookup tables. But the other thing with the building code is that, yes, it's minimum compliance, but what it shouldn't do is hinder the market leaders from building market from building best practice. So those people that want to do best practice often get pulled back by the certifiers because they say that's not building code compliant, and then go justify why it's um, better than building code. So if they have those mechanisms and understand what best practice is to allow that to happen rather mm. than hinder it, I think that that's a win in itself. 
because then the market leaders and we can get more people out there showing how it's done. I'm just curious how the conversation goes with the, say, the certifiers whenever you present something that's obviously much better than the code, but um, because it's maybe outside their realm of what they uh, handle or deal with on a day-to-day basis, push back on it a little bit. How, how does that conversation usually typically go? Well, more, mainly, mainly it comes through the grapevine. So there's someone that's out there trying to sell a product or a system. Uh, for example, one of our distributors and they come back and say the certifier is not accepting this for X, Y, Z reason. And then I say, okay, well, there's a couple of ways we can, you know, try and convince them, you know, have a conversation with them and, and educate that certifier. But what the certifier is trying to do is cover their ass from a liability perspective. If there is no cause that says it's all right or no standard that says it's all right to build that, I can see why they're um, reluctant to certify it if they mm-hmm. don't understand what it is. Mm-hmm. So often it, it could just be a conversation saying, look, this is the way it works and this is what we're doing. Here's some content and some literature around how it is and how, what it is and how it works. Um, other times it can be a lot harder uh, and they won't move anything unless you've got you know, a full code mark certificate. With the code mark certificates, then it's like, well, what are you code marking against? Because does that meet code or is it, better than code or anyway so it's it's a difficult sometimes it can be difficult uh but ultimately ultimately it's an engineered solution uh at the last resort which means that an engineer has to sign a bit of paper and anything goes wrong then they're the ones that have to sit in court and explain themselves but if you know what you're building works then you shouldn't have a problem a problem signing um that document as uh yeah as as we start to wind down. What, what's what's uh, next for ProClimber? What does the near future look like? Um, are there things that you're working on, products you're bringing to market, um, spaces you're getting into? I mean, we'll, we'll keep um, innovating and keep progressively bringing more products to market. I can't specifically say what, uh, announce to everyone what we're doing. Yeah. But in put it this way, in internationally, we sell a lot more products and a lot more systems than's available in Australia. And that's not because we're holding Australia back. It's just because we need to, we need people to understand the systems that we do sell before you start introducing new ones. Uh, because obviously anything new takes time to, to learn how to, how to, um, apply and install. So yes, we'll, we'll bring in, be bringing new stuff. And as air tightness gets um, tighter and tighter through the building code or otherwise through, through market leadership, then yeah, there'll be room for new systems and new innovations in, in the air tightness space. Uh, and the weather proofing space, I mean, we're, we've got a lot of catching up to do with the rest of the world, making properly weather tight buildings that uh, don't make water. And I think there's, there's a lot of potential in that market for doing things a lot better than what we're doing now. Early on, you mentioned about the quality of the, I guess, the installation or the install uh, during the build stage um, impacts the end and end performance of the building. Is that a challenge that you see in some of your products? And how, how are you kind of shaping the, I guess, the improvement in terms of that that stage, that particular stage of the build? Yeah, so I, that's primarily where quality construction will come from, which is mm. the application side. But we have in-house um, application expert. Uh, so 
Daniel Jacobs. Um, you should have a chat to him too at some point. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he, he he's got uh, decades of experience from Germany as well. And like I said, being 30 to 40 years ahead of us, um, it's it, a lot of the problems are, have been seen and, and been solved. And a lot of the time it's like, yeah, we used to do that back in the 80s and 90s, but we sort of got rid of that construction practice. It's difficult sometimes if, if, if you're too far ahead of the game, but it's the only way you can sell new products and new systems and better products and better systems is to, to upskill and educate. Otherwise, you just end up competing with, with every other company out there selling you know, the, the, the cheapest method of doing the same thing. And uh, which two professions do you think should talk more to each other uh, to, to, so that we can, we can um, get better quality buildings. Or could are, be are, more. You, are you kind of, you want me to say the architects should be speaking to the builders more? Or? <laughs> no, I'm just, because uh, uh, it's something that came up um, with the, the last podcast we had where during the design stage, um, just having a conversation with the builder does help because there are things uh, that are very hard to either change or amend or fix once the construction phase has begun, but then um, there are there could be other professionals that can influence or impact or add value to the project as well that might not be uh, that might more, might not be involved in the conversation. So I'm just curious yeah. to to hear that is from your vantage point. I mean that's absolutely right because the in the architectural field, I guess it would be nice if things were detailed to a higher level of details so the builders didn't have to make up details on site so it depends what what sort of building you're dealing with and, and you know, what scale of building uh, but ultimately the more details drawn and developed that are actually buildable details then the better things work uh, the more you leave up to the builders on site the more they the cleverer they have to be essentially but it costs money to detail stuff to a high level to you know one to two scale to draw a you know full scale drawing of something to get a minute detail right is expensive, uh, but these will evolve over time and, mm. and details are an important part of this. But this is where something like Passive House has got it absolutely right because it's not just a certification system; it's a quality control system in that they actually look at every detail and every junction and say, okay, what are you using? How does that work? And have you done the, the thermal bridging calcs on it? So once we get to that level of detailing and they become normal details in the context of Australia, because you don't need as much insulation, to be honest, as you do in Scandinavia. Uh, so you can build a passive house, for example, with a lot less insulation than, than you need in, in northern Germany or something like that. We need to have those standard details and they need to be freely available and they will be and they'll start to evolve and more and more will come. But also on the, the weatherproofing side and details that actually work, not details that are just dreamt up. And all the weatherproofing and facade testing that's going on off the back of building cone changes that happened back in, I think 2015 it was in terms of full scale weather testing. Uh, so that's, that's, you know, we're talking about five, six years down the track and people, there's all this knowledge that has started to build up around mm. how to properly detail drainage systems and flash-ins and, and um, how to connect things into windows, how to connect the membranes into windows, make sure they don't leak. That's all important details. And this is all part of the future of buildings, which are not directly related to energy efficiency, 
as such in terms of energy savings, but they're directly related to the ability of the building to remain dry, which is also related to how you insulate the building. So you have to think about all these um, design problems and fire overlaid on the top of that because obviously insulating with the wrong material in a high-rise building isn't a good outcome either. All these things overlapping and then you get into what's known as building enclosure design, which is a whole discipline that's missing in Australia. So you go to Canada, for example, and a, a building enclosure consultant will be the consultant that pulls all these things together, talks about all the things I just mentioned, mm-hmm. and draws it in details and detailed junctions so that that will actually work. It's uh, similar in Brazil. I've been doing a lot of uh, lead projects for some of my counterparts in Sao Paulo, and they have a specialised uh, discipline, would be uh, building ceiling or like a permeability uh, group. So uh, yeah. there'll be someone specialized to do the detail on the section or the tapes mm-hmm. and um, you know, air type yeah. is uh, membrane. In Australia, no one knows. No one knows. I'll, I'll be in contact with an architect you know, who, who does that. Yeah. We're not responsible for it. It's yeah. the facade engineer. The facade engineer, no, it's not us. So yeah. we can look at the uh, infiltration of the facade system, but we don't look at integration to the envelope. Yep. Yeah. So it's a whole discipline that overlaps with uh, facade engineering, yeah. um, with ESD and with mechanical engineering because they're the guys that are responsible for temperature and humidity inside the building. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then actually understanding on a really intricate level of detail how buildings go together. There's a big hole in the market. So if you want to fill it, um, go for it. Market opportunity. Mm-hmm. New consulting firm. Building enclosure design, that's where it's at. <laughs> the future. And uh, as a last question, are there any people uh, in the industry that you follow, pay attention to uh, in terms of content-wise or just um, their work from a professional vantage point again? I mean, there's a lot of, uh, we, we, I mean, I can't call out any specific, but there's a, there's a lot of really good um, designers, architects, engineers uh, in all the space everyone that uh, ProClimate works with, but also the builders. Uh, I was recently on Instagram um, stalking people that were using our products on Instagram, and I was super impressed with some of the um, details and the innovative solutions they're coming up with. Because as I said, you know, it's not off-the-shelf solutions that, that we as ProClimate sell, and there are hurdles that you have to overcome. And some of the stuff going on is, is, is fantastic in terms of the, the quality and, and the, what, what people are delivering. So, no, I'm not going to call out anyone specifically uh, and say, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, but, but there's, there's a lot of good stuff happening. And, yeah, I can give you specifics um, after the podcast if you want. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, no, I totally understand. But uh, thanks, uh, yeah, thanks uh, for making time today. It's really intriguing to hear more about what you're what you're doing, what Proclama is doing as well. I I feel like there's a lot more we need to probably unpack. Um, <laughs> but we'll save that for a second conversation. Funny enough, I was thinking about health and comfort as the next series, which which seems to be uh, should have been this particular series because um, it can't really separate health and comfort and then energy efficiency. No. It's a building as a system. That's what it's about. They're all interlinked. They're all interlinked, yeah. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, thanks again. And I'm pretty sure we'll be be, uh, meeting up uh, most likely in the new year. 
Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks Kelvin. Thanks, Roberto. Cheers. Cheers.